Welcome, dear Looking In, Breathing Out listener. Thank you so much for being here. We're excited to share this first episode of our inaugural season with you. A couple quick things before we launch into it. Our team has been working towards this moment for a while, and a few things have come up in the interim, like, well, a global pandemic. So this first episode was actually recorded before everything locked down last year, including schools. But the episode is weirdly prescient, and it speaks to some human tendencies that may need our attention now even more than before. You'll see what I mean when you hear it. So, take a listen, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe to hear more. We also want to hear from you. Write us a review, send us an email, share your thoughts, join the conversation. And now, without further ado. Welcome to Looking In, Breathing Out. Uncommon reflections on common questions. Hi, I'm Jennifer Davis, yoga therapist, writer, and urban planner. I'm Mara Hesed, yoga teacher, artist, mom. I'm Jonathan Salisbury, actor, director, producer, and composer. At a time when it's easy to be a little afraid of what we could catch if we get too close, Mara explores an epidemic that, unlike COVID, plagues more children than adults. In this episode, she hunts for lice, examines disgust, shame, and lizard brain, and looks at empathy and the power of the pause. Don't want those lice hanging around me. Don't want those bugs on my brain. Don't want those critters bugging me Driving me crazy Don't want those insects in my hair Making me itch Don't want those crawly things on my head Thinking that they found their niche No, sir Well, lice does funny things to a person There had been murmurings about it and a gentle suggestion from Mrs. Trevino, the teacher, to put tea tree oil in your shampoo and, of course, check your kids' heads regularly. Then, not just the one, but six parents in the kindergarten class found them, these tiny gnat-like creatures clinging to the roots of their children's silken tresses. Last year, our whole family got lice. My daughter was at her then-preschool when I got a call saying, you need to come get your child. She has lice. I will admit, I cried. Partly, I was daunted by the prospect of removal. We'd never done lice before. We did have bed bugs once, though, pre-kids in our Venice apartment, and it took weeks to get rid of those little assholes. But also, picking up my daughter that day, there was definitely a part of me that felt embarrassed— I felt shame, because, ew. Disgust is a learned instinct. It is a protective impulse that is part of our machinery, and it keeps us from, say, eating rotten food. But we have to be taught what's gross and what's not, and there's a lot of variability on that spectrum. While bugs do tend to have a high ew factor, many cultures actually eat snails, caterpillars, grasshoppers, even ants— Then there's obligate parasites, or lice, which nobody eats. In effect, they eat us, living externally off of just about any warm-blooded host they can find, except 
pangolins and bats, oddly enough. Different cultures are disgusted by different things. Perhaps if I were Dutch, I would have reacted differently. Apparently, they're super fine with lice over there. Of course they are. But being a neurotic urban American, I felt disgust, followed by a dull sense of, well, shame. Was I a bad mother? Was my child unclean, the subject of repulsion? When I arrived to fetch her, I may or may not have been projecting the teacher's subtle recoil as she pointed out what was sure as shooting a friendly louse, plainly visible, crawling on my baby's little blonde head, like the rest of us, just trying to stay alive. That same day, my son's head was itching, and now that I knew exactly what to look for, I found one easily on him, too. I was subsequently rather distressed to find my own head, and even my husband's, infested. Lice affects far more women than men worldwide. This is likely because more women tend to interact head-to-head with children. Perhaps you knew this. Lice don't jump or fly. They just creep. And they can only live for 24 hours without a human head. So they can be transmitted on stuff, backpacks, pillows, hats, hoodies, etc., but only within that 24-hour window. The best way to get lice is good old-fashioned head-to-head contact. And since folk mostly don't do that, unless they are either children or in love, you could opine that while the insect itself is not beautiful, the way they're transmitted kind of is. Nonetheless, having creepy crawlies in your hair doesn't feel good. We sort of know that we have bugs on us all the time. We may have learned this and tried to forget it. As one science article puts it succinctly, thousands of mites are crawling, eating, sleeping, and having sex on your skin at all times. But they can only be seen by a powerful microscope. This works like a 1950s marriage. They survive off us, and we do our best to ignore them. And because they're microscopic and asymptomatic, that's not so very hard to do. Lice, on the other hand, are quite visible, and they itch. In fact, you, dear listener, are almost certainly surreptitiously itching your own scalp right now, just because of the potent power of this revolting suggestion. As groovy and progressive as we may be, making up rhymes and raps to assuage our paranoia, there is, at least in this country, a slight social stigma around lice. We erroneously associate lice with poverty and poor hygiene. Lice infestation has, in fact, been documented all over the world in developed and undeveloped countries, suburbs and slums, rich schools and poor schools. Everybody gets lice. It is one of the great unsavory equalizers, up there with pooping and nose-picking. Lice, like socialism, is egalitarianism at its very least welcome. They don't care. It's it's the parents. It's always the parents. That's Mrs. Trevino, the kindergarten teacher. The kids don't care. Like, the first one who had it walked in and was like, I had lice this weekend. You know, they just announce it because they don't have any shame (laughs) attached to it at all. Um, No one actually personally blamed me, but um, they'll say, like, 
the school didn't do enough. And they and I always tell, I'm like, I follow all protocols. When someone tells me, I let you guys know. I say, hey, there's been a reported case of lice, but I will not give names. Some parents demand names so that they can tell their child to stay away. But I'm like, no. Because it is transmittable, and the only way to avoid it spreading is through quarantine, it tends to make people feel unsafe. Feeling unsafe puts us straight into our lizard brain. This is the most primitive part of our human brain, often called the reptilian or lizard brain, because that's as far as those guys got evolutionarily. Lizard brain governs in alliteration, fight, flight, food, fear, freezing up, and fornicating. Evolved as we are, it is surprising that we use our lizard brain with such frequency. When we sense in any context that we are not safe, whether the perceived threat is a saber-toothed tiger or a small child with a tiny bug on her head, lizard brain kicks in, and suddenly it's us against them. A similar phenomenon happens when you get a cold bug. Everyone gets colds, they're fairly innocuous, and though contagious, not generally so hard to kick. You're not irresponsible about it. You wash your hands regularly, but you feel gross, and your feeling is only confirmed and amplified into shame by people saying things like, what's wrong with you? Or fake smiling, oh, good to see you. I'd so hug you, but I don't want to get your cold. Or like, need a tissue? Holding it consciously or on at arm's length. Or, oh, did you touch that spoon? It's okay, I'll get another. Well, it's not the plague. They're just using their lizard brains. But there's a thin line between self-preservation and malice. In yoga, we talk about the mind as Play-Doh. And all those dents and dings, the blows we receive, the unkindnesses, subtle or plain, passive or aggressive, those impressions register in our extraordinarily sensitive minds, sometimes even on a subconscious or nonverbal level. And then this small feeling begins to form inside you that somehow you failed, and surely you didn't deserve that hug anyway. And what of our fellow Homo sapiens, each gifted with a brain that scientists have called the most complicated object in the known universe? What about those of us who are not just afflicted a couple weeks here or there with a bug of one sort or another? What if you have a serious illness or a handicap? What if your appearance presents something that, like a scarlet letter, marks you as socially unclean and makes other reptilian humans feel unsafe around you? Maybe you're gender fluid, or obese, or a teenager, regular people wading through the muck of social stigma. Maybe you're a divorcee or an addict. Even if you have no guilt about the choices you've made and the things you've done, you may still harbor that small feeling of bad personhood, that steady undercurrent of shame that Carl Jung calls the swampland of the soul. Brené Brown, well-known author and speaker, has studied this phenomenon for 12 years and finds shame to be an epidemic in our society. She assures us that her extensive research shows that the only people who don't experience shame are actually sociopaths. So that's comforting. Is it inevitable then? Are we simply bound by our nature to be victims of self-loathing? The Buddhists say we're not, 
They call it the second arrow. The first arrow, they explain, is misfortune. Everybody gets hit by the first arrow sometime in their life. Bad things happen, big, small, often, occasionally. Whether it is lice or a cold or bedbugs or something else having nothing at all to do with pestilence, no one dodges the first arrow. It's the second arrow that we have the option to avoid. The second arrow is all the stories and feelings that we add on to the direct experience. It's the extra stuff that makes the first arrow so much worse. Blaming and why me and hate and anger and fear and shame. The first arrow is painful, but it is the second arrow that causes suffering. So much better just to nurse the wound of the first arrow and do your best to get out of the way of the second. So the other question that arises is, why do we do it? Accidentally or on purpose, why do we shoot arrows at our fellow humans? By which I mean, why do we revert to lizard brain, branding and stigmatizing the other to protect ourselves? We evolutionarily superior beings do this to each other so much, sometimes with truly tragic, even historically devastating results. Yet I think, I'd like to think, that most people, if asked, would choose expansion over contraction, embrace over recoil, love over hate. The poet Rumi says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. The fact is, we don't automatically choose love, because we have unconscious barriers built into the Plato structures of our minds. Fortunately, if we think of our beautiful minds as Plato structures, we know we are not powerless to shape them. We can let other people shape our brains for us, or we can choose to shape them ourselves. The practice of meditation in yoga, as in most wisdom traditions east to west, is meant to strengthen our awareness of the singular moment, the moment that exists between stimulus and action. The moment between trigger and descent into lizard brain. The more we practice paying attention, the more we are able to slow down and inhabit that moment. They say that is where freedom and power reside. If we can just learn to pause in that moment, it affords us the opportunity to validate our emotions and assess what is really happening. Then, in theory, we will have the skills needed to respond to the situation rather than reacting to it. This is how we realize our fullest potential to love. In mindfulness training, they use the acronym STOP. S is for STOP. The first step, learning to pause. Then T is for take a breath. We often forget about this incredibly handy coping tool, our own breath. It is always available to use and can change everything if we do. The O in stop is for observe. We go around most of the time not knowing what we don't know, not seeing past the tip of our nose. But if we pause long enough to ask, what is happening in this moment that I am not noticing? Reality shifts. Finally, the last letter P stands for proceed. We can only proceed after we've fully stopped. This takes practice. It takes stopping over and over and over again until we get good at it. 
We're creatures of habit. There's an actual word for this, automaticity, the function of the brain that enables us to do things without consciously thinking about it. Like when you drive, you don't have to think gas pedal, brake pedal. You've just done it enough that it is molded into your Play-Doh brain. In this way, we become what we do. Sages in every tradition have exemplified this practice of good personhood. A famous example of unfettered humanitarianism would be Jesus, cleansing the leper when he was not supposed to go near the man because he was considered unclean. Another example, while she has fewer followers, only 25 at the moment, and they are diminutive, they don't have any money and mostly can't read. Also, they do things like throw up all over the rug and get lice. For a mere mortal, Mrs. Trevino, my daughter's kindergarten teacher, might be pretty close to sainthood. You can see in your teaching that that sense of inclusion, um, which is kind of why I wanted to talk to you, and non-judgment. I've always been super aware of people's feelings. I feel other people's feelings, sometimes to my detriment, um, because I might feel something before somebody's ready to even say it. And um, so, yeah, I just, I think I was just born with a deep empathy, I guess, so, yeah. If I ever find myself getting frustrated and it's like a sound in my voice, like it's, like I, suddenly my voice gets a little shrill when I say something or, you know, and I find my, I'm getting frustrated with something happening, I stop and I say, Hey guys, I'm like, Mr. Vino's feeling frustrated right now. I really believe in labeling the feelings and modeling for them that all of these feelings are real and okay, you know, and what to do with them after that. Like, it's really important. So I stop and I breathe, you know, I show them that I need to breathe and I say, okay, w what do we need to do now so that I don't get frustrated? And we talk about it. I think that's what's missing, like in the world is the ability for everybody to talk about how they're feeling genuinely. And I think so many problems could be avoided if people were able to do that. I'm sorry, I'm crying. <laughs> You're so beautiful. That's exactly what, that's, I mean, that's, you just described mindfulness training and yoga and surely a lot of meditative religious traditions that I don't even know about and that is that's the pause yeah and I love that you're exemplifying that for the kids so then when they see you do that like what do they how do they respond oh, so their arms yeah. fly up as if they're hugging me from afar and then they squeeze their hands open and close like they're giving me like a squeeze it's the sweetest thing <laughs> there is a lot of empathy that happens in this room yeah each week we focus on something like this week was about how emotions feel in our body and how we could notice that in someone else so we know how they're feeling. Like if someone else is getting frustrated, like we could stop and be like, oh, what I'm doing is bothering them. This is stuff that, um, I, I don't know, I feel like I'd see a lot of adults missing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I guess we get so worked up into what we think is important that we don't do what you said, which is like what's more important is the person I'm with. Yes. Do you ever see them like acting out of self-control, like making a choice? Making a choice, yes, yes. I was so proud, because we, we do have one little boy who just self-control in general, um, and not being the only person in the world that can do whatever he wants is not easy for him. So it's been a journey with him this year. Um, and I was just so proud of him, because the other day he started, he sometimes will just say what's on his mind. And at first it seems like, at first I was like, wow, he just, being mean to the kids but then as I've gotten to know him I'm like no he's not he's not actually purposely being mean there are times where he might be but more often than not he's saying his thoughts so for instance somebody might share we have a morning circle and I always pose a question and we talk about it so somebody might share their thought 
and he'll say, well, that's stupid. Oh. Um, right? Um, and so at first you're like, whoa, like we can't say that. That's look at how that person feels. Like I'll point out, look how you made them feel. You know, we talk about it as a group, whatever. But then I started realizing actually what he's in his mind, he genuinely is like, that's not the right answer. This is the right answer. So, you know, so oh, I was so proud of him because the other morning he started to say, well, that's not, and he stopped and he like took a breath and he just like, settled back down like this and I was just like yes you modeled your behavior yes. did you give him a arm know, shot, right? squishy finger I hug tied, I pulled him aside later and I was like I'm really proud of you I saw that so yeah very good yeah. So. so it's working it's working it's working how do you teach inclusion? You, you talked about inclusion and, mm -hmm. um, you know, loving everybody equally, even if they have bugs in their hair. <laughs> do you have an approach to that? So it's Martin Luther King Jr. week, and so um, we always teach about that. Actually, you know, some of them don't even realize they're black at first. Like, it was really funny because the class looked around and one of our, like, lightest students was like, am I black? <laughs> like transparent almost <laughs> um, and then one of our students who's who's darker was like huh and so it is it is hard sometimes it's hard because you're like I don't even want to expose them to the idea that anybody thought something like this which is why I try to just be like isn't that silly aren't we all like look at how beautiful all of our skin are you know if we all look the same wouldn't the world be boring and you know, so I just try to keep it light, I guess. I don't know. Do you think you would ever teach like kindergarten for grown-ups? <laughs> Finally, I had to ask her, have you ever had lice? No. Wow, why not? I have never had lice. I know, right? Well, our family was also spared the lice arrow this time. But if it comes up again, as it almost certainly will, hopefully we can avoid the second arrow. As soon as you find that pesty wee friend in your kid's coiffure the first time, and you get on a steep and immediate learning curve to find out how to murder that little bugger, you find there are ways. We opted for the hair lice removal salon. Some lice professionals even do house calls. It takes a certain type of person, but these are literally professional pickers, and they are nothing if they are not thorough. You still have to wash or quarantine everything that heads might touch in your house. You might miss school, maybe work, spend more money than you really wanted to, and comb, and continue combing, and comb your kid's hair for moments, upon hours, upon days. But the thing is, even adding up the disagreeable nature of the task and the time and money spent fixing it still, like so many of life's slings and arrows, the actual experience of it does not end up being as great an expenditure as the energy we tend to waste worrying about it. If shame is a swamp, maybe there's a pinch of it that is necessary. They say no mud, no lotus. This means we have to navigate through the yucky parts to grow. And usually, the darker the mud, the more beautiful the lotus. We were visiting family in Seattle recently, and our son got a cold. He hadn't seen his bear of an uncle in months, and as we came up the front steps to greet Uncle Stu, by way of sizing up the situation, I said, he has a bit of a cold. Hmm. 
He does, does he? growled Uncle Stu. Then there was a pause. Get over here, he said, and he pulled his nephew into a big, warm hug. Who do you want to be, the lizard or the bear? How do we practice being good so that we can stop and proceed without shooting arrows? I like to be a bear because um, it's cuddly and I like it looks like teddy bears and they're they're nice to um to their cubs and they are they like to give the they like to eat fish the this episode was written by Mara Hesed and produced by Jonathan Salisbury, who also composed and produced the music. To access other episodes, discover more, or to send us your comments and questions, please visit lookinginatbreathingout.com. Thanks for listening. All that scratching is breaking me.